This is the Fatty Joe Show, coming to you from Casa de Cary, deep in the forests of Nutmegerville. This show is dedicated to exploring pathways to better health from a holistic perspective. In each episode, we will explore such topics as nutrition, mental and emotional health, fitness, and more. I'm Yogi, your host, and I became interested in studying health after conventional health dogma became damaging and led me to become massively overweight. Against modern convention, I went on a keto lifestyle and I lost over 300 pounds and gained a level of control on my personal health that I never had before. Now I'm on a journey to find out what is myth and what is truth in the ever convoluted world of what is considered healthy. Come join me on a journey of discovery as I look for a path to improve total health. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash the fatty joe show or patreon.com slash carrie brown. If you want to check out all of our social media links and recipes, head to carriebrown.com. Don't forget to leave a comment, like, and subscribe to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fatty Joe Show. Today, I'm, I'm really honored to have somebody on the guest who, who should be one of the first five episodes I've done because he's definitely one of the early influencers into my keto journey. It's somebody that I, I listened to on podcasts and read books on when I was driving out on the road, when I was struggling with my weight, with my fatigue, with my symptoms of CTE, and I was trying to learn how to deal with that with a, a nutritional method out on the road so I didn't have to go to the doctor. Uh, for those those of you who know my story, we have, uh, I had weighed over 618 pounds as a truck driver. I cooked on my truck, I changed my diet on my truck, and I lost a lot of weight. I was also suffering from symptoms of CTE. So people like Tim Noakes, who I have on the show today, was people that I researched quite in depth on learning how to change my diet, eat healthier foods, and go away from the standard American diet or stupid American diet to to get into a healthier lifestyle and, and do what was right for my body. So I want to introduce Tim, Professor Tim Noakes to the show, and we're going to ask for Professor Noakes' superhero origin story. Well, thank you. I mean, you're a superhero. I was just asking you before we started, were you the world record holder? Because the record holder in South Africa lost 200 pounds, and I thought that was untouchable. <laughs> wow. You know, you came along. You came you know, along with your story. Unfortunately, in a in the U.S., I'm probably you know I'm up there for weight loss, but there's there's a lot of people that um, because we you know we set that American standard that went around the world, so we've been at it a bit longer. So we've been getting taking more time to get fatter and fatter on the Coca Cola and the sugar and the corn and and all oh. that. So so my story, my story is that. I was a, a medical doctor. I trained as a medical doctor, but during my training, I became much more interested in physiology and exercise and health promotion. 
So I never really practiced as a doctor. I did my internship in the hospital, qualified as a doctor, and immediately went into research and realized that my strength was research. It wasn't so much in the management of day-to-day illnesses. So eventually I qualified, got my MD and my PhD and so on. And then I started teaching sports science in the 1980s. And at the time, it was the the new idea was that this high carbohydrate diet made you very healthy and made you run faster. And of course, we were funded by the industry and we promoted this high carbohydrate diet and the fact that you couldn't run well unless you ate lots of carbs. Unfortunately, at the age of 61, or fortunately, I should say, I suddenly discovered that I was type 2 diabetic and I read Eric Westman's book, The New Atkins for the New You. And originally, I was really angry because I thought, here's Eric Westman, a very good scientist, and he's promoting Atkins. How can anyone promote a saturated fat diet? Because I was so blindfolded and you know, driven by this dogma. So eventually, I, within two hours of starting to read his book, I realized, oh my gosh, I've been wrong for 33 years. And within two hours, I decided to stop eating carbs. And the, the effects were miraculous. I mean, it was just, just astonishing. I lost 22, kil- 22 kilograms and my running went back 20 years. So I felt like I was a 40-year-old again at 60. And eventually, I had to tell the world that I change my diet. And the problem was that all our sources of funding were from people who were promoting the high carbohydrate standard American diet and a high carbohydrate intake, lots of cereals and grains. So within within a very short time, I lost all my funding. <laughs> so, so as a research scientist, that's pretty tough. And then, then I wrote a book called the, the Real Meal Revolution. I co-authored it. And that set off a complete revolution in this country of low-carbohydrate eating according to the Banting diet. We introduced the term Banting into dieting. And uh, eventually, the dietitians got so angry with me that they decided they had to, to try and take me out. So they reported me to the Health Professions Council of South Africa. And I had a choice. I could have, they, they offered, they said, well, you know, you can just plead guilty to a lesser charge and you won't have to go to, to this court hearing. I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is, this is about my career because if I'd had to accept that, my career would, here's a quack, his whole career is destroyed. So we went to court for 28 days, uh, over four years, and eventually we won on every count. We won 13 decisions to zero, the opposition. And we wrote a book about it called uh, Real Food on Trial, which describes the whole story. And it was, it was an, uh, in retrospect, it was amazing. During going through it was tough. Yeah. And it's all my biases against the medical profession were just exposed that, you know, there's got the medical profession has so much to answer for. And, and I was, I was charged by my colleagues, the senior colleagues in my university. And I'd done so much for the university. And they were, they were completely out of their league. They didn't know what they were talking about, but yet they were listened to because industry supported them and industry was bringing pressure to bear and so on. So anyway, uh, I've, I've had a remarkably enjoyable life and I've always challenged ideas and, and I'm glad that I've been able to help people like yourself and, and other people. And that, that's what's really rewarding about this is that if you try the diet, it works and yeah. all of a sudden you become healthy and that everything I've done has been worth, all the pain we went through has been worth every minute of it for knowing that we're helping people. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I grew up eating the carbs as well. I was an athlete when I was younger and yeah. 
um, they always taught us in football, you know, eat your high protein and stuff for so many days. And then before the game, you know, the night before the game, you do that carbo load, eat up the spaghetti, eat up the, of course, you know, you're in the middle of the game and halfway through the quarter, you start to bonk out because you got that carb crash going. And, uh, you see a lot of the football players when I was playing, they, you know, especially the linemen, we we're chunky. We were chunky, yeah, very right. chunky. Yeah. And it seems like the athletes are going more to this low carb diet now with uh, either eliminating or moderating the carbs much more and not doing the carb loading. And now you see the linemen playing the positions that I was playing and they are, they're looking like bodybuilders. They're lean, yeah. they're powerful. I, I watched a comparison video and it was around the time when they were doing high carb diets in athletes when they first started out. And it compared a video to today of an athlete that I know is low carb and they were both breaking away for a touchdown and running across the field. And the one from the 19, uh, I believe it was the 1970s when the low carb, the, the high carb diet was in there. He looked like he was in slow motion compared to the guy that was current. He was just, Wah! and yeah. so we're seeing a movement of, of led by athletes and engineers and researchers who are trying to tell the practitioners yeah. we were wrong. We got to change. And, you know, it's interesting. I've just been asked to, to debate a lady who, who I've worked with for many years and who promotes the high carbohydrate diet for athletes and just and realizing that, that she bases her argument on the theory that it should be right. You should need carbohydrates because your muscles need glycogen to burn quickly and so on. And that when you eat fat, you've got, not got enough glycogen. And that's, that's the theory. But in the, in the end, you have to go with the experience. And, and the experience of the athletes is exactly as you described. You know, if, if a world-class athlete comes along and says, I did this diet and I do this diet and it works. Like Chris Froome, for example, who wins the Tour de France, who, who in fact grew, grew up in South Africa and Kenya. So, so you know, I followed him with some interest. But he, he was a slightly pudgy cyclist when he was cycling in South Africa. He was still a professional. But he couldn't break through, and the breakthrough came when he lost those extra kilograms on the high, the high fat diet. That doesn't mean to say he doesn't need carbohydrates when he's competing. But when he's not competing, he he can only control his weight on this low carbohydrate diet. And, uh, and he's a big proponent now of the low carb diet. I've listened to Zach Bitter talk, who does those extreme marathons. I'm not big on the running aspect. I was always more lift heavy things. So I, I actually really get interested in, in talking to runners because it's something that I'm not used to doing. And, uh, the you know i tell people like bb king said i'm built for comfort i'm not built for speed <laughs> so but uh i i listen to zach bitters and he talks similar uh situation where he was on a higher carb diet and then switched over and he does incorporate more carbs in different types of cycles in his diet he doesn't control his macros ex extremely tight but there's times where he's much lower carbs and there's times when he's higher carbs and he just does what he feels his body needs. He even talked about back when he was learning how to run, there was those carb loading days where you were just, you know, going to the buffet and just macking down on everything that you could get your hands on that was like a noodle or rice mm -hmm. or potato. And we're seeing people that came from these 
endurance sports world that in their heyday looked very healthy weather on the carbs. But as you said, with your own personal experience, as they're getting older, more and more of these athletes that experience the high carbo loads are getting type two diabetes, are are struggling with controlling their weight. And instead of going to a high fat diet to control their weight, many of them had tried in the past going to carb restriction or not carb restriction, um, calorie restriction. And that did not work well for their performance. The, the kind of dawning on the new age is, is using fat for fuel. And people are finding that this fat now you, you, you can run longer, more efficiently, and you don't bonk as easy. And you're currently doing a lot of research into this type of nutritional foundation with the Noakes Foundation. You've started a nonprofit that um, I really encourage anybody listening to this podcast, please go to the, the, the website, the Noakes Foundation. Uh, um, Professor Noakes' website, check out this foundation. And if you can support it, whether it's it's supporting with, with some finances or your data or or getting involved in some sort of way, this is how we we move our science our our dietary standards that the government puts out to a more scientific base because we get the evidence that we can present to the government and say, hey you know, we need to do it this way, not the way the lobbyists want it. Yeah, well, thank you very much for drawing that attention to our research. And it's terribly important because there's essentially no funding for low carbohydrate diets from the National Institute of Health and in my country from the research funders. It really has to be driven by the private enterprise. So, and and it's critical, as you say, it's critically important because ultimately what saved me was that when I went to court, there was evidence because of Eric Westman and Jeff Volek and Steve Finney had done the research on the Atkins diet and they'd started in 2004, 2005. So there's 15 years of evidence and really good studies. But if it had been 20 years ago, there was nothing. And I would have, I couldn't have defended myself. And interestingly, that work, Eric Westman's work and Verlick's work was funded by the Atkins Foundation. And again, that was an NPO, a non-profit organization, was separate from the National Institute of Health. And Jeff Verlick tells us, I mean, to me, Jeff Verlick deserves a Nobel Prize because his research on the low-carb diet is exceptional. I mean, he, he just, he thought of the problems 10 years before anyone else. And, and he's provided the answers, he's provided the evidence. The research he's done has been absolutely astonishing. And so... It, if he hadn't been, and sorry, I was going to say he, for 20 years, he applied every year to the National Institute of Health. And as soon as you said low carbs, it was turfed because the people at the top were influenced by industry or they were controlling the message and they didn't want a different message to be spoken about. Is, let's talk about how important it is to support research in this because we are, we are kind of a with this research like through the Noakes Foundation and through NUSI and through other programs that are researching nutrition through public funding, it's very much a David versus Goliath type situation with, um, because the current funding that comes for goes for a lot of the research is done by one food corporations who are trying to push out they they want the research to say that their food is okay so that's the re, the result that they're paying for so they're paying for like a predetermined result so you better make the data fit that result 
So we're not necessarily getting the best research that way. The other research is being funded by religious organizations like the Seventh-day Adventists, who also have an agenda on their books because they don't believe anybody should be eating any kind of animal product. And when you eliminate animal products, you tend to go to a higher carbohydrate diet. And for them, it's it's ethics, morals, and somebody had a vision that said that we shouldn't be eating meat because we didn't have a meat. You know, you know honestly, is that vision a vision or is it mental illness? We don't know. So we have these issues to deal with. So let's kind of expound on, on what is the difference between supporting a small research program that doesn't have an agenda of where they want the data to go versus large corporations who have a set point they want the data to fit into. Yeah, well, you know, let me give you an example of what happened to me. So so when I went to court, we, we provided 6,000 pages of scientific data. These were publications that had been peer-reviewed and which supported my argument that we shouldn't be eating a high-carbohydrate diet for all these reasons. My, the prosecution, who had endless funding, produced one paper, one paper, which we believe is fundamentally flawed, and we, in fact, exposed that. And this was a meta analysis of so-called low-carbohydrate diets, but it weren't even low-carbohydrate diets. They classified anything below 45% carbohydrate as low-carbohydrate. And what we showed was that there were 14 material errors in the paper, and that if you change one or two of those, then the, uh, the conclusion became the opposite. And the conclusion then became that this fake low-carbohydrate diet was actually outperformed the low-fat diet, and people lost more weight, and etc., and they became healthier. And this was the evidence that was presented. And people have said, so I, I, I wondered, how could they make 14 material errors? Then that's one point. The second point is, in a meta-analysis, what happens is they have to look at all the studies. And if the industry is funding studies that are biased towards what they want, then any meta-analysis is going to include more studies which are biased than others. And also, if industry doesn't publish the papers that refute their position because they don't want that to be published, then, the, then it also biases the outcomes. And so, so you're quite right. As long as you have research funded by industry, the majority of the papers are going to support that industry's position, or at least not negate it. They will support it. So that, that's what happens when you have industry driving the research that's being done. And that's why we need more studies done like by people like Jeff Ehrlich and Steve Finney, who were able to come along and say, no, no, this is the evidence. You, this is the reality when you do the proper studies. Because remember, industry will also fund studies that give them the answer they want. As a scientist, I can tell you, you can set up any experiment you like to prove anything you want. But that's not science. What In science, what you must try to do is to disprove your ideas and to move on and to keep moving on incrementally. And you don't keep just doing the same research. Uh, for example, uh, the carbohydrate research that is done on athletes immediately assumes that the carbohydrates are going to be beneficial, and they will never experiment to try and disprove that. There's not, we're the only people who've ever tried to disprove that. Oh, sorry, not the only. There are a couple of us in the world who, who've tried to disprove this, this theme. But that's not profitable because you just immediately lose your funding and, and you experience what I had. So you're quite right. The call for independent research. People say to me, well, the Noakes Foundation has, has a desire to prove the low-carbohydrate diet works. No, no, no. We want to know what works. That's all. It may not be the low-carbohydrate diet. It may be a slightly changed low-carbohydrate diet. But it's pointless starting the 
experiment thinking you know the answer. You must start the experiment to try to move your knowledge forward. And that, that doesn't happen in, in funded research if industry is involved. Yeah, good science to me is you're always asking who, what, where, and why. Hmm. You know, and you're always challenging the results that you, the answers that you get. When you when you get a conclusion for your why, you ask another why, and you keep challenging to make sure that it's 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 going through. And that to me is good science. Whereas corporate funded science, they're they're saying this is the what. Now find the why to lead to the what. <laughs> you know, and, and so that it, when you when you're when you're not testing to challenge your conclusion, you're not doing science. No, precisely. I remember I, I served on a committee that selected the, the top sports scientists every two years and they got an Olympic medal and that was Pfizer was funding it. And I remember there was one Nobel Prize winner on the committee and, and he said, listen, we only want people who've changed the world. We don't want to give this award to people who just do the same thing. And, and one year I was asked to assess someone who in fact did eventually win the award and he'd had 90 PhD students, 90 PhD students. But over a career of 50 years, had he moved the field forward? No, he started with a really good idea. And then it was just every PhD was just to continue confirming what that person had found. That's not, that's not good science. And at the end of the day, he hadn't advanced the field as he should have because he had so many resources that he could have made a much bigger difference than he did in the end. One of the things that I look at that I, I've absolutely loved the concept of, and it's never, uh, it's always been a challenge to put it into practice, but I, I've, I've read the preamble of the, the American Constitution several times. And, it, you know, that we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, they rested the um, responsibilities of creating a better government on the citizenship rather than the politicians. And we mm -hmm. seem to have lost sight of that um, pretty much right after it was written. But I, I, I love to encourage people to do this because if you really want to go with that philosophy to have a government by the people, then you need to participate in changing things in the government that are wrong. And one of the things that the government puts out that is incredibly wrong because it is it has been taken over and controlled by lobbyist groups with special interests is the dietary standard. So it takes us as people to participate in research like what you're doing with the Noakes Foundation in order to bring out better data to make the positive changes that we want to see in our world so that we have less 600-pound people walking around creating a burden onto the healthcare system, a burden onto themselves, and not living the life that they want to live. I, I know I wasn't. And to help our communities be healthier, healthier, more independent, and and uh, and not reliant on governmental assistance, get them healthier. And it takes us to do that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And again, that's partly why I went to court to to defend that that position against the the so-called anointed who make the decisions for us and who really don't who have no clue about, and they don't want to understand what's happened. So I agree with you entirely. So we wrote a book called The Real, Real Food on Trial, which was the story of the trial. And that looks at a lot of the evidence why the, new, the dietary guidelines are completely wrong. 
we've just been asked to write the next book, which in fact we've completed and it's coming out in, in March. And where we look, it's called the Eat Right Revolution. And we look specifically at the dietary guidelines, how they were developed and why they are completely wrong. All six of the dietary guidelines are unscientifically, they're not scientifically based. And then I explain how if you're going to eat carbohydrates and you're insulin resistant, then, then you're going to get into trouble. And that, it's the first book, not, not sorry, not the first book, it's the, probably the second or third book where we looked specifically at insulin resistance. Now, at my medical school and at Harvard and at Yale and at Stanford, they don't teach about insulin resistance, even though. The person who really described insulin resistance, Gerald Raven, was a professor of medicine at Stanford. And he'd come within an inch in 1986. He'd come within an inch of saying metabolic syndrome and obesity, hypertension, diabetes are all linked to high-carbohydrate diets and are reversible with a high-fat diet. He, was, he just had to do one more experiment and he would have shown it because he was always almost there. And he never, he never did that experiment. And he writes a book about 15 years later, and he describes his diet, which is no different from the United States dietary guideline. And I'm convinced that he realized if he came along at Stanford and said, listen, you cardiologists, you're all wrong. You're prescribing the wrong diet. He would have been nailed. He would have been thrown out of the university. And he, he realized, well, do I want to do that at this stage of my career? Maybe I just want to carry on. And that, that was tragic because if he'd taken that step, insulin resistance might have become properly taught at all the medical schools around the world. Instead, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, well, it basically it's excluded. It's because it doesn't fit the dietary guidelines theory. We had so, so we've written that book and uh, that hopefully it will, will make a difference yeah. because we, the information, it is so obvious, it is so clear. And, and I, will put, I will put links to all the books, the show notes, and to the Noakes Foundation down in the show notes so that people can easily find, find the books. And I do recommend people read read Tim Noakes' books because I I had uh I was listening to everything on podcasts as I was driving along. So I was hearing parts of the story and then I I I got the audio ver version of the book on uh, Audible and listened to it while I was out on the road. And it it really it's enough to make you want to pull your hair out when you're listening <laughs> to certain things on the book. You're like I, I I remember I was yelling at the book as I was driving like what? <laughs> so but at the there there is so much valuable information on there as to the science of how the science got to where it's at and and what the science actually should be compared to what it what is being promoted now. Uh, and honestly, a uh, Joseph Goebbels kind, Goebbels kind of way is way they're they're presenting the the standard American diet precisely. And you know the the lead scientist for nutritionist who was for the prosecution, she wrote the South African Dietary Guideline, and all she could come up with one scientific paper. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and well, and I, I must tell you that it was the first time in her life she'd ever been challenged, and our lawyer challenged her, and it was it was wonderful <laughs> because Dr. Rocky Ramdas, who's a lawyer but a medical doctor, who we um, we're called brothers now, we just like this yeah. because we, we actually loved the twelve. <laughs> Loved it because we had such fun preparing things, and and he's just an, an absolute legal genius in a very understated way. So anyway, this is the lady gets up who's written the dietary guidelines for South Africa, and who's now the chief prosecution witness. So he says, so now she's given her evidence, and now he's going to cross-examine her. And so he says, so what was your undergraduate training in? So she said, home economics. 
that, which, which wasn't a great start. So then he said, what's your PhD? And now my PhD is in physiology. So, so what do you know about nutrition? You know, what degree do you have in nutrition? Now I have no degrees in nutrition. So he said, well, what do you know about the low carbohydrate diet? Have you ever prescribed it? No. Have you ever prescribed a diet to anyone? No. And, and you've never done any experiments on the low carbohydrate diet? No. So the, and then she was also as an ethics expert. You see, she'd been put up as an expert in ethics because I was meant to have broken all these ethics. So he said, and so tell me, what training do you have in ethics? No, no, I don't have any training in ethics. So he said, well, why are you here then? <laughs> that, was, that was the ultimate crash because she had spent 50 or 60 years never being challenged for one minute because dietetics, you're not allowed to challenge anyone. You just accept, yeah. accept, accept. And that's not just in South Africa. That's that's global. Well, you know, too, it's if you ever pull up the pictures of the leading health governmental health experts from around the world, you will find a collection of some of the most unhealthy looking people you will ever see on the planet who are telling you how to be healthy. And that's got to give you a clue. Yeah. You know? well, this, this, this lady, since died and she died of cancer and in fact she was being treated for cancer and that's but it would never have occurred to her that what if the cancer has a metabolic basis yeah and there's a lot of research going into that about how certain cancers are glycophilic and absorb the sugar in the body like they even when they test for cancer they give you a radioactive sugar solution because they know the cancer is going to eat it up like little pac-man and then it lights up inside your your body yeah, so that's yeah. gotta i mean that that knowledge, we have enough knowledge to go, we could test using sugar because the cancer seems to like to eat it, but can't we starve the cancer by removing the sugar? Like that doesn't, I don't understand how we don't take that next step. Like the, exactly. So one of the, you know, I've got all my critics are slowly dying now <laughs> or not slowly, rapidly dying. Yeah. You know, this Chinese saying that, you know, you stand by the river and you watch the dead bodies of your enemies flowing past. But, but, but interestingly, one of the ladies who was most vocal against me and who said some horrid things about me and who promoted a vegetable oil, lots of vegetable oils and instead of saturated fat, dies of dementia two years older than me. And people didn't ask, now she died of dementia, was it because she was promoting a grain-based diet with lots of vegetable oils, or wasn't it? Yeah. But when Atkins died, then of course everyone says, well, he died because of his saturated fat, high saturated fat diet. He slipped and fell and hit his head. They never ask that question. They contribute Atkins' death all the time to his diet, but the thing is, he, he slipped and fell and had a head injury. Yeah, and, right. and like, they, they don't, they, that bit of information keeps getting lost. Yeah. One of the ad hominem attacks that people constantly have against the low-carb or carbohydrate-restrictive diets is the fact that it's a fad diet. But honestly, it, the modern diet's more of a fad diet than the carbohydrate diet is because we have known since the ancient Greeks that if we took away sugar and things from people's diet, that we can control the diabetes, that we can control weight loss. And you mentioned Banting at the beginning, and that's for people who don't know, William Banting was a overweight patient. He weighed, uh, I believe, close to 300 pounds, and his doctor told him to take the breads out, take 
the sugars out and to, to lose weight. And he wrote a, a letter called a, a letter on corpulence. And the low fat diet became known in European countries and then in other countries as the Banting diet. And this was back in what, the 1800s? Yeah, it was 1862, I think was. The, he wrote a couple of versions, but one of the one I have is 1862. So that, that was the Banting diet. And that, so therefore, it's not the fat diet. That is the original diet. The yeah. original diet is the Banting diet. So everything after it is a fat diet. So you, you're absolutely right. But when you tell that to dietitians, they, it's like you didn't say it. You, they, they can't hear it. Well, even the modern uh, push towards societal veganism mm -hmm. is a very modern thing. It, it, it started in, you know, the the main modern movement started with the Seventh-day Adventists out um, of the U.S. because a lady had a vision. And I, I can't remember her name, but she had a vision that said, we didn't eat meat before, so we shouldn't eat meat now. And one of the main missions of the Seventh-day Adventists was to control lustful thoughts. And so they removed meat and high caloric, you know, uh, natural fats and things from the diet because they noticed people's libido went down. <laughs> and that's what they were trying to control. And it wasn't weight loss necessarily that they were trying to control. It was libido. And if you look at, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists who were promoting, amongst other crazy things, the uh, the vegetarian diet, uh, people like Harvey Kellogg, they are not the most healthy looking people on the planet. Most of them were very uh, overweight for their time. And they were promoting things like margarine, which is their margarine was much different from our margarine that it is now because their margarine was, it wasn't the processed, uh, when margarine first came out, it was, I believe, beef tallow mixed in with some other stuff to make it look like butter. And then they they went moved toward more of a vegetable base. And I believe one of the early vegetable based ones is uh, a mixture of coconut and palm oil with something else and then it went into the vegetable oils and completely became unhealthy and so you look at these people that they they have another agenda behind them that is not health related and as a matter of fact if you're lowering somebody's libido you were turning them you were damaging their health to lower that libido in order to to gain control of those impure thoughts <laughs> absolutely and you know one of the so when we introduced the Banting diet into South Africa, there are, to just to give you an idea of how impactful it was, that there in Cape Town, there's a Banting seven-day meal plan Facebook page. That's in the town that I live in. It doesn't mean that it's only people in this town that prescribe to that Facebook page. We now have 2.4 million people signed up to that Facebook page. And that covers a lot of Africa, but it does include some other countries as well. But that shows the impact. And sorry, and the main point I'm going to say is that the single greatest complication, of course, it's not a complication, of the Banting diet was pregnancy, unexpected pregnancy. And this was, of course, a huge advantage because people would start writing and saying, you know, I'd been told my, by my gynecologist that I was never going to fall pregnant because I had all the wrong conditions. And just within two months of changing to the Banting diet, I fell pregnant and this is the baby, etc. And I know there's one baby named after me for being born under those circumstances. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot of people write about keto babies that uh, yeah. have come onto the line. And and uh I've also seen, you know, traditionally certain sports 
that women participated in would often affect their uh, ability to to have normal cycles, normal. Um, I know women in gymnastics when I used to be in the athletic field who uh, didn't get their first period until they were in their 20s yeah. and, and female runners. And a lot of them were the high carb, mm. you know, on that high carb plan or extreme caloric deficit. Yeah. And the especially the gymnasts and the dancers, extreme caloric deficits were like three or four days in a row. They're not only eating ice cubes, then they might have a piece of toast with a banana and then ice cubes, you know, and they've damaged their internal systems to the point where their body's like, okay, we're in starvation mode. Let's, we can't support child uh, production. So let's shut that down. We're seeing athletes now that are switching toward the high fat diet that are not having these issues. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just reading at the moment, the the keto, the, the, the case for keto by Gary Tobbs, who was one of the, also the people who helped me get into this, because once I read his first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, I just realized that how we'd been misled. But uh, in his book, he, he makes a number of those points that if you're eating a starvation diet, you're going to be in trouble. And he talks about the Ansel Keys uh, starvation diets in the, first, in the Second World War, where he put these uh, the people who didn't want to go and fight the war the religious objectors, and they were put through this and put on this 1500 calorie diet for six months. And he said they just starved and they psychologically, they were destroyed by the end of the program. And that's a 1500 calorie diet. Now, all those athletes you were talking about were eating 800 calories, maybe. And all you get if you're going on that diet is psychological trauma. And I think what I've realized is that if you want to cut calories to lose weight, it's not going to work. You've got to change your diet. You can't expect to eat the same food and just cut the calories and think that's going to work. It doesn't work. You just get hungry and you get all these other psychological issues. Well, I can can attest to that from experience because um, I was very dogmatic in my approach to my diet before I discovered keto. And uh, I was, I call it my brontosaurus meal plan because I was, I was a 600 pound vegetarian. Yeah, but yeah. you know what? Oreos are vegetarian. Yeah. I was eating because you know things are supposed to be healthier for you because there's no meat products in it. So I was eating um, tons of vegetables, but a lot of starchy vegetables because I found that the only way to stay satiated longer was to add these higher starch vegetables like potatoes and things like that in there. So what does that do to your insulin level? And yeah. I didn't understand all this because it was never taught to me. I mean, since yeah. I was in elementary school, I was taught don't eat a lot of meat eat a lot of vegetables, eat your starch, eat your breads. And that's what I did. I thought I was being healthy by going get my sprouted whole wheat bread and eating, you know, a ton of that and having my, my, I can't believe it's not butter because that's healthier than butter. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's right. And I got to be 618 pounds when I walked across a truck scale eating that diet. So do you tell me what is your hunger like when you change your diet? So, sorry, let me ask this question. So, how often were you eating when you were 618 pounds? I was hungry all the time when, yeah, yeah, when I was yeah. eating the more vegetarian-based diet. Like, seriously, I was dreaming about my next meal while I was eating my current meal. Yeah, yeah. And I would, honestly, I would be ravenously hungry, usually between 45 minutes to an hour after I ate my last meal. And it could be a a sizable meal. The times where I did break down and have like some eggs or some fish, I noticed that I stayed satiated a little bit longer, but it still wasn't 
there. Mm-hmm. And as I switched over to doing the higher fat, because I did not, I actually did not switch over to a higher fat diet and carbohydrate restriction for fat loss because I didn't believe it would work. Mm-hmm. I was experiencing, I had uh, played a lot of contact sports in my life, even did some time as a pro wrestler and even working security. I got hit in the head with bottles and things. So I'm a, I'm a big guy. I'm about six, six, you know, and I did. Yeah. So, you know, I got hired to be the scary guy to stand, mm-hmm. to make people not want to <laughs> fight at the bars. And uh, so I, I ended up having a lot of hits to my head throughout mm-hmm. my entire life. And I started experiencing symptoms associated with CTE. Mm-hmm. You can't get diagnosed with CTE unless you're autopsied. And I didn't want to go that route. <laughs> um, I just decided to try keto, a very high fat version of keto, because um, for the people listening who get onto the train of, you know, that food's not keto, Food isn't keto or not keto. Keto is a metabolic state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to emphasize that to people that I help all the time and to not freak out too much about the food that they're eating. But I went on a high fat ketogenic diet and I started doing things like the bulletproof style coffees. You know, I was listening to Dave Asprey and things like that. As a matter of fact, the name of the show, the Fatty Joe Show is after that, but I didn't want to like pay Dave Asprey a lot of money. So I call it the Fatty Joe Show. Uh, I I started doing that and I made my coffees, my meals, and I started discovering that I can have my bulletproof coffee in the morning and not eat all day. Yeah. And that was such a novel experience to me. And and it even played with me psychologically because I had my bulletproof coffee. And at the end of the day, when I was done driving, whatever time that might have been, I was like, you know, what? I haven't eaten today. I better just go eat something because I hadn't got into fasting and all that. And there was still a psychological block of like, you got to eat so many times a day. Um, I since have broken that. And my biggest fast so far has been eight days. I would have never been able to do that when I was eating the previous diet. I would have like chewed somebody's arm off. (laughs) but even before I did the keto diet, I would, I was actually banned in the U S we have all these buffets, Chinese buffets and these buffets over here and and smorgasbords and all that, because Americans are all about food. You go in, you eat as much as you want for one little fee, right? I had pictures of myself up on walls of some of these places with like a a note below saying, do not let this guy in. (laughs) Because I would go there and and just kill the place. And they knew they weren't making a profit off of me. There was like a, a, a pizza eating contest place where I was in, in uh, when I was in high school, where each slice of pizza was probably four and a half feet long. And that's the slice. So like the yeah. entire pizza is, is close to nine, nine feet in, in diameter. You know, they had a contest where if you could eat the entire pizza, you got that pizza for free, a coupon for a free pizza and a free dessert. I had a stack of coupons by the end of the week. Yeah. And the guy's like, you're done. No more. And <laughs> I, I, I had that level of appetite where I could easily do stuff like that and still be hungry. Like I, I never, like I never really felt satiated until I started the high fat diet. And it, it's amazing that it, it, to me now understanding how ghrelin and leptin and, and insulin work in the body that I was just so probably so high in insulin and ghrelin in my body that I was just, even when I was supposed to be full, my stomach's at capacity, my brain is still going eat something. 
No, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating story. I always think that people like yourself have, have such experience. You can teach us so much. But people, the doctors don't talk to you, you know, and we worry about losing five kilos or something. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's hypothetic. <laughs> that is. Well, you know, everybody has their struggles. And I'm not going to put my struggle up to somebody else because, one, a lot of my eating could have been um, fueled by emotional issues because that's one of the things of CTE as well when you have brain injuries is your emotions are a little out of control. You know, stress can drive emotions. I was working at 1.4 jobs. Yeah. And I was working in a high stress industry because I worked with group homes for at-risk kids, the, a lot of kids coming from the most severe abuse situations you ever imagine. A lot of trafficked children that were trafficked for um, either slave labor or sexual trafficking. And I worked at domestic violence, sexual assault shelters, and I saw some of the most heinous things human beings can do to one another. Mm -hmm. And my emotions got out of whack. And I think some of that Driv drive to eat was related to that stress. But I don't think that was the only factor as well. I think there was other factors that played a role in that. Um, but I do believe... I believe a lot of our problems in modern society when it comes to nutrition and other types of things is when we try to boil down the information to the most simplistic terms and we don't look at whole systems and we don't look at root causes and we don't look at, which is why I admire researchers and engineers because they look at the broader picture rather than, you know, when the media reports something to you, they there's research that says like the one that I always go to is the kale analogy. The research says that there's certain aspects of kale that can be beneficial to your health. And I read the research paper that they 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 quote all the time. And it talks about how there's beneficial components to, to kale that it can be beneficial to, you know, possibly in your diet when used in a certain way. And then the news repeat boils it down to the simple thing. And they say, kale is the most healthy food you can eat on the planet. And then, you know, everybody's eating kale and only kale. And they have all these health related issues because they're not getting a proper diet. Yeah, precisely. Now, I like your idea that you've got to look at the total picture and that, that just doesn't come across anymore. Well, you know, that's I think that's where the engineers and the researchers are changing the ballgame because that's what you guys look at. And I think that mental laziness of our society to to just give me that quick information. I want the quick answer so I can go on my way and I don't have to think about things. I want a meal plan so I don't have to think about what I have to eat. You know, And it's not that they're necessarily mentally lazy, but we live in a rat race society where we're constantly having to go, go, go and do this. So we want to take the decision-making out of certain aspects of our life and we just want the easy solution in certain aspects of our life so that we can handle all these other things. That's, that's where it kind of hurts us because is then we stop asking why. And it not only hurts us in dietary, but it hurts us in politics, it hurts us in religion, it hurts us in all these things when we stop asking why or how. Yeah. And is this necessarily right for me? Because even though I'm a proponent of the low carb lifestyle, there may be certain conditions that people have that mean that they have to consume more carbohydrates. I've read about people that have issues digesting, there's genetic issues digesting fat. And there's issues where people in the US, we have that longhorn tick where if you get bit by it, you become allergic to red meat. Mm. I believe red meat is extremely healthy now, but yeah. if you're allergic to it, it's now toxic. Yeah, absolutely. Now you make some very good points. The, with the research that you're currently doing, you, uh, 
I, I, I was looking at your website and you have a call out for um, financial donations, which we talked about earlier up there. And I do encourage people, if you can put something in on this, this is how we control the, you know, that we, we kind of wrestle away control from corporate entities to, to people and get better data. But also there's calls for people to be a part of your research project and contribute their own data as well. Can you tell us what you're looking for in that realm? Well, we believe, you know, part of evidence is is anecdotes. And there's a whole debate about do anecdotes prove anything? Well, you know, your anecdote proves something very strong that, that you were doing one thing and you reversed it and you did the other. And your anecdotes are an example of what you can do, what you can achieve. So if someone told me, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it's possible to lose 400 pounds weight. I would have said, no, it's impossible. It's utterly impossible. Well, you proved it's possible. So that that now changes how we understand things. So we were we when we started, there was very little evidence of beneficial weight loss weight loss of the degree that you got. But then people would write to us, and the, one of the first people who wrote to me said he lost eighty two kilograms. That's over one hundred sixty pounds in eight weeks. Sorry, twenty eight weeks. And I mean that that astonished me that you could lose that amount. He was losing two to three kilograms a week, and it went on for twenty eight weeks, and then he just stopped. Boop. No more weight loss, just like the biology set in and he didn't lose any more weight. And that's always interested me because if you read the scientific literature, the clinical trials, if they lose more than six kilograms on whatever weight program it diet is, either low carbs or low fat, that's very unusual. But we were getting all these reports, people losing 20, 30, 40, 50 and up to 80 kilograms. And so and without any problems, without any great difficulty. And it was completely contrary to what's in the literature. And what we teach our medical students is that, you know, you can expect a six to eight kilogram weight loss if you if you go on this diet or that diet or you start exercising. So the and the and the problem is that people like yourself are motivated because you have a medical reason. And if we put you in a clinical trial and fed you a diet or the other diet, it's not the same motivation one bit. And then you've got the problems of sugar addiction, which you have to overcome if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet. So I suspect that many of these clinical trials, when they randomize the group to to low carbohydrate, they've got lots of sugar addicts there, and those sugar addicts are not going to stop eating the sugar. And so their weight loss is going to be constrained eventually by, by that sugar addiction. So we were really impressed by all these reports that we were getting, and we wanted in some way to collate all the information and and publish it. And in fact, I did do that. I published the first 127 cases. And these were purely people who'd written to me. They had written and said, this is my story. And, you know, they wanted to remove that paper from the the literature because they hadn't got ethical approval from all these people. But they sent me an email and they gave me the information and it was completely, we we didn't uh, expose who they were. But it was purely the industry-driven scientists were trying to stop this information because it was clear that the low-carb diet was being very effective. So it's kind of an extension of that. It is obviously second-rate research. But as I wrote in my article, that, that study cost us nothing. And I said what it leads to is an hypothesis that the low-carbohydrate diet might increase your weight loss and might reverse type 2 diabetes. Well, well, now we pretty much well should know that, that that's the case. 
the evidence is now accumulating that diabetes is reversible on this diet. So what I'd postulated there as an hypothesis, I wasn't the first, Atkins did it, but at least I wrote it in scientific language and said we need to do a randomized controlled trial. So so we did do some, we're doing, we're doing a randomized controlled trial in the poorest people in the Western Cape, in our hometown. And we were, we were just starting when COVID lockdown began a year ago. So as soon as the lockdown stops, we'll go back and do that. And, and that's a randomized control trial, which has never been done in the poorest people in the city. I shouldn't say the poorest, but amongst the poorest people. And going on the low-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. Can you sustain a low-carbohydrate diet? And, and what we know from our pilot studies is that the diet is feasible and it produces dramatic results. In fact, the results are probably even quicker in this population because their diet is so atrocious. It's all sugar and, and refined carbs and vegetable oils. That's all it is. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing healthy. There's no healthy animal fats or very little. And, and that's, that's what's missing. And as soon as you change it, you change lives dramatically. Now, I had, I, on one of our programs, we had a pre and post and after we get together afterwards. And the one lady was just crying and she said, you know, I had a family, all of whom had diabetes, and I knew I was going to get diabetes, but I wasn't going to go for testing because I knew what happened to my father and uncle. They all lost their legs, became blind and died. And I said, the same was going to happen to me. And she said, you've reversed my diabetes on the start. Now it doesn't have to happen to me. And that is, that's so amazing because these people have a tough life. And if yeah. you can help them just a little bit with, with simple dietary advice, it's, it's very rewarding. The, the, the problem is that governments are, are not interested. They just don't want to do it. Even the local government who's responsible for paying for all the medical care for these patients, because we have a, a, a free service to, to poorer people, they don't see it's their responsibility to try and help and do something about the diet because the diet's controlled by the dietitians who are controlled by industry. And the industry is pushing the carbohydrates and the sugar into those very communities. If you go into those communities, the only adverts you see are Coca-Cola. And Nestle is another one. I was I was listening to a documentary about Nestle's push on baby formula into a lot of these. And Nestle's baby formula is absolutely horrible for human health. It's loaded with sugar. It's loaded with sugar, soy, a bunch of other things components to it, vegetable oils and things like that, that is, is completely horrible. And I was reading that in Africa, and I don't know if this is the same in South Africa, but several areas of Africa, Nestle would advertise to the low income black communities that this is what the white women feed the white babies. And this is why the white babies are so healthy. And when the poor women went into the hospital to have their babies, they would get these gift baskets full of Nestle stuff yeah. to get them. They wanted the women to get the babies on formula as quick as possible so that the women stop producing milk to stop feeding the baby. And when we're doing this, and, and that's a major component because you're starting the sugar addiction from infancy and working the way yeah. up. It, it, it's so nefarious, but it's for immediate profit. It, they're not looking at long-term conditions, but they know they get these people hooked on their product. They get this major immediate profit. Now, the other tie-in is there's a lot of research showing that that the food major food companies are also owners in the large major pharmaceutical companies. So when the people get diabetes, then they make more money selling the 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 medicine to cover from the bad lifestyle food to cover those symptoms. Yeah, precisely. And you know the the complaint against me was because I said you should wean children onto a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, i.e. animal produce, and not onto cereals and grains, which I didn't say, but that was the obvious 
So Nestle had to be interested in in making sure that that was not conveyed to the South African public and that yeah, I was exposed. But, I, but they I, didn't... I saw an interview of the guy that, that was the CEO of Nestle, and I swear to God, he was a uh, hairless cat away from being a Bond villain. He's he's just he has no care about the community he's in. He just he's all about profit. And I think that companies that run not every company runs that way, but companies that do run on that model, it's very short sighted because all they're thinking about doing is is providing a much larger profit than what their previous quarter was, so they can they can they can get more investors to invest in their companies and further increase those profits they and and they don't look at the damage that they're doing or and that may cause longevity issues with their own businesses. Well, in South Africa, the sugar sales have gone down about 20%, and the sugar industry is in real trouble in South Africa. But cereals and grains have also gone down about 20%. So, so people are getting the message slowly. And Yeah, I was reading that uh, I believe it was uh, Brazil. I want to say Brazil, but it was a place in South America that is now requiring sugar companies to put easy to read warning labels on all the Coca-Cola products, the Nestle products, the candy bars, and the, like similar to the Surgeon General warnings that they put on cigarettes here in the United States. And they are um, banning the advertising of sugar products like Coca-Cola, sugar cereals, and things like that to children. So there's no more like Tony the Tiger being advertised, you know, yeah. kids, go get your parents to buy frosted flakes because that's what the athletes do. Yeah. So yeah. they're putting a moratorium. We we used to ban that stuff here in the US, but the Reagan administration kind of opened it all up and said, no, advertise to the kids. And and since that happened, we've seen a skyrocketing in of obesity here in the US. So we have, a, I just happen to have it here on the hand, but this is the, uh, the magazine that is sold by the homeless people on the side of the streets, the big issue. And I was asked to edit this edition, which is just on the streets. And there you can see sugar high, health low. That was that's the message of this of this issue of the the big issue. And there at the bottom is the guest editor and so on. So, but I speak I speak about the fact that the dietary guidelines are all wrong, and you shouldn't you shouldn't follow the guidelines. But it's yeah. really interesting because this goes onto the streets, and it's it's not been passed by the professors of medicine at the University of Cape Town and the professors. But the people are getting information right on the streets now. That's awesome. And it'll be interesting to see how they respond. Well, you know, in spite of the vitriol that certain things, media platforms get like social media and things, in a lot of ways, for better or worse, it has democratized the amount of information that people can get regardless on yeah. uh, their income level. Because even in the most poor countries in in the world, people still are now increase, having increased access to internet and to cell phones and, and things like that, where they can pull this data streamed from everywhere. I'm amazed when I look at the data on the podcast of where this podcast goes throughout yeah, the world and how many people listen to it. Back in the 80s, I might have gotten in trouble for pirate radio doing this kind yeah. of stuff. And, and now I can do this and, and send this information out to people all over the world with a click of a button and people are seeing it, which is 
absolutely incredible. The fact that you and I are sitting here talking and exactly. you're in South Africa is just incredible benefit yeah. to all this new technology. And we could use these platforms to get this information out. So, you know, my, my son took a great interest in my trial because he got very angry with the people and he just completed his PhD and he decided to look into the question of online academic bullying on Twitter. And he's written the first paper of online academic bullying. But oh. as part of that research, he looked into a paper that I wrote with Asim Malotra and Stephen Finney. And the title was, You Can't Outrun a Bad Diet. And this paper, which was one and a half pages in an obscure medical journal, a British journal of sports medicine, is ranked as one of the five top publications of recent history. Medical publication. I mean, it's astonishing. But he's found that it, it was tweeted something like 42,000 times, the, the, the story, and it went to 42 countries. It's a, wow. and that, as you say, that so this is a scientific paper which was just went like that. And so they, you're quite right. The social media is the way that we get messages out today, and it's yeah. it's unstoppable. Yeah, and unfortunately, unfortunately, the bad messages also get out yeah. with with social media. But there's still it does create an access point of all this. I mean, we have unfeathered access to the world's knowledge on. Uh, something that we could fit in the palm of our hands. The world's library is there. Exactly. And for better or for worse. And that's an amazing thing to see uh, in time. And the potential of the good that we can do with this is just as astonishing. Because education, in my opinion, is, is leads to the betterment of all of our societies. It it's leads to better health. It leads to but teaching people how to get educated as well, like how to ask the question and then find the answer to the question, I think is the main main key, yeah. like a researcher. We're going to go ahead and start closing things out. I, I do believe we kind of went a bit long, but I do. Can you give us all the links for the Noakes Foundation, and so we can encourage people to participate, to donate, to get on board with this research so that we can put more information out to combat a lot of the misinformation done by corporate lobbyists and special interests. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Well, I think people should just go to the Nutrition Network on the internet. So type in Nutrition Network on Google and you'll find and then there's also the Noakes Foundation, if you want to know a little bit more about myself. Those are the two places where we put most of our information up on. And then we do run the Nutrition Network, which has been a massive success. That was one of the first recent novel things that we did, because we wanted to educate doctors and other practitioners, nurses, nutritionists, and it's been hugely successful. So this is a, it's now become a global brand. And you can become a certified nutrition expert by going through the programs. So I would think that that's another, that's another program that people might want to get involved with to do their courses and to upskill themselves on, on how to prescribe proper diets and, and how to use it for themselves and to know all the, the, the history behind it. We have the world, some most of the world's authorities are on that program. Awesome. I'd definitely be interested in checking that out. I've been looking at furthering my education into the getting certified for nutritional training to help other people out. So I definitely would be interested in looking into that myself. And uh, I'm going to ask my standardized five questions. So my first question is, what three foods do you think everybody should incorporate into their diet? Uh, fish, meat, eggs, I would say those three. And then I'd put dairy Dairy is not quite as clear because some people don't digest it properly. So fish, meat, and eggs. 
all foods that I love. I love <laughs> eggs in particular because they're like the Swiss army knife in the kitchen. You can do just about anything with them, you know, uh, plus they're so nutrient dense. What yeah. are three foods you think everybody should avoid in their diet? Yeah, I think I'd start probably with bread and then breakfast cereals would be the second. And then the third would be vegetable oils. And of course, sugar, because sugar would come into two of those at least. So so maybe I should have put sugar. You can't leave out sugar. So you'd have to have the four, I think. Okay, so we'll go with four. That's all right. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, is, is a lot of those things are, you know, sugar seems to be the master control to all those things except for the vegetable oil. What is a, uh, what is a nutritional myth that you wish you could get rid of overnight? Oh, that cholesterol is raised by a high-fat diet and it causes heart disease. That, that is completely, utterly wrong. <laughs> yeah, even Atkins admitted that toward the end of his career. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so that we could get that right. And I mean, that's, that was the argument we presented in my trial. And eventually they had to say, yeah, what you said is evidence-based. And that was, that was the key moment for me, <laughs> that it wasn't quackery. It was evidence-based. Yeah. What is something that you wish you could change about the medical industry if you could change something overnight? Yeah, get it independent of the pharmaceutical industry. That, that's the big problem. Because until you can do that, you can't change medicine. Medicine is purely a propaganda. Sorry, let me just rephrase that. We have acute medicine where you have a burst appendix or you have a trauma, head injury, whatever. Medicine is unbelievable. And those and the most of the surgery, the obstetrics, unbelievable. Those doctors are the best. They, there's nothing to compete with them. Brilliant. Contrast that to chronic disease. The medicine of chronic disease is utterly hopeless. So, and that is because it's driven as a propaganda promoting the drug use for health, and that doesn't work. So, I like to say that 85% of chronic disease, not acute, chronic disease, is due to your diet, and you can't fix it with pills. So, that's where I would like to see the change. The medical schools were funded independent of the pharmaceutical industry, and that you could be a professor of cardiology without having to prescribe statins, that your department could run even if you said statins don't work. And the same with insulin and diabetes. If you could run a department of endocrinology, independent of pharmaceutical industry, and you could then say that insulin is not the treatment and nutrition, nutrition is the treatment. But as it's currently structured, you can't do that because you would have no career, as, as I showed. Once you stand up to this, you get thrown out of the universities. Mm -hmm. So, so that, it's, that's the problem. And, and, and people, it's got nothing to do with what you say. It's, it's about the influences behind it that are making sure you cannot make these statements and that, that you get cancelled the moment you step out of line and start yeah. teaching people to look after their own health and not to expect drugs to work. As soon as you step out of that line, your career is essentially finished. Yeah, it, you know, that's that's where we've been kind of like a theme to the show most of the day is those special interests that mm -hmm. control guidelines and governmental uh, regulations that is really creating a lot of problems and hurt on on the populations that's supposed to be served by these programs. Who yeah, are five... Oh, right. carry on. Sorry, carry on. No, go ahead, because I was going to ask the next question, but you want to add to that, so go for it. Yeah, I was just going to say that why is it that if you're going for surgery, the outcome is terribly important, and if the surgeon messes up, he will be mortified by it, and he will learn and he will change. But with my diabetes, as it was, go to the doctor, and the fact that five years later I'm worse, we don't care about the outcomes. That, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah that's, it it's, it's really is backwards thinking on that. And I think uh, 
I would like to say that we need to get more doctors trained in nutrition, but if they currently get trained in nutrition, they're going to get trained on the bad <laughs> nutrition. So we need to change the nutrition standards first and then train the doctors. And, so, and that's a good time. A university or a medical school that's teaching this proper nutrition has yeah. to be saying, guys, nutrition is more important than drugs. Right. And once you make that, the, the first medical school to do that will be very, very brave indeed. <laughs> I, I was... All, as, as an EMT, when I got my EMT training when I was younger, I was always taught you take the least evasive approach to treatment and yeah. then you graduate up. And it, when, when you do medication, you are not taking that approach. Yeah. You know, if you change lifestyle and things first and you're still having a problem, then it leads to, okay, so there's still an issue here, then we have to go to medication. But the medication should be one of the last things on the list. You should be change these things first. And then if that's not working, let's go to the medication. So, you know, one, one of the things that I obviously realized during my trial was that let's say I was professor of medicine at my university and suddenly I saw the reality. And the reality is the following, that South Africans are very unhealthy because they've given the wrong nutritional advice. If I, as professor of medicine, get up and say, guys, we're giving the population the wrong advice, my, my department would collapse because all of a sudden there would be no funding. And so my efforts at educating doctors and medical students would be wasted. And that's the terrible problem that every professor of medicine across the world faces. Do they acknowledge the reality? It's that what we're doing is harming the patients, the, the global patients. Or do we say we're harming the patients and then we destroy our discipline. How do you make it? How can you do that? You can't because you've been brought up in the system. And at 45, when you, you're you looking towards your retirement age, you're not going to say things like that. And that's yeah. that's where medicine is caught in this this terrible, terrible vice. And it, it doesn't know what to do. Well, it does know what to do because it just continues doing what it's always done. And the people are getting more unhealthy by the moment. Obesity, diabetes rates are just shooting through the roof. And we can't change it for that very reason that I've described. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a paradox because a paradox is unexplained, but it's definitely a, uh, a perpetual motion machine that you really want to stop because it just keeps you kind of like on this hamster wheel of going, eat the unhealthy food, take the medicine, get more unhealthy, eat the unhealthy food, you know, just keeps going. So it's, yeah. it's just, it's a mess. Um, my next question I like to ask because it introduces people to new people to research. You know, like I, I do this podcast because I find majority of the people that I've had on are all the people that I've learned from. So I'm introducing everybody that I've learned my information from to the audience going, go to these people, get the information. So I always like to ask the people I have on because everybody stands on the backs of giants. Who are some of your health heroes so that people can go and, and look at other people to, to see more information and gain more resources to their journey? Yeah, I think I'd have to acknowledge the people, the many of whom you will know, because we went through similar journeys. And there's no question my journey started with the book, The the New Atkins for the New You by Eric Westman, Steve Finney, Steve Finney and Jeff Ehrlich. And that reading that book changed my life. And I would not be here today, I don't think, if I hadn't read that book, because I read that book 10 years and two months ago. And my dad was diagnosed with diabetes and 10 years later he was dead because he followed the advice of the day and of today. And if I'd continued following the, that advice today, I would certainly be 120, 130 kilos. I'd probably have had a stroke. I might well have had a heart attack. I could be losing sensation in my toes all at 72, but 
I haven't fortunately got got there because I managed to reverse this whole thing. So I really owe so much to to Eric Westman, who I think many people don't understand. And the little story about Eric that, and I because he told this to me, so I'm, I'm sure people will be interested to hear it. That he was a conventional car physician practicing at Duke University and one day two patients came in consecutively and they both lost 50 pounds and he asked each of them what did you do and they both said the same they said I'm eating the Atkins diet so he said you can't do that you're gonna die what's your cholesterol it'll be through the roof so the one patient said well doc why didn't you test it so he said no that's quite a good idea so he tested and it was absolutely normal so that then he's had a paradox. Yeah. And he decided he had to go and see this guy, Atkins, because he didn't believe he was a medical doctor. So he went on and phoned him, and Atkins invited him to New York. So he arrived in New York, and he was actually surprised to see the guy actually was an MD and did have a clinic. And then he was pretty impressed because there were lots of patients doing well. And But then he told Atkins, he said, listen, your problem is you don't have any evidence. So Atkins said, of course I have evidence. Look at all these patients, all these anecdotes. So so. He said, no. Eric said, no. You've got to do research. And so Atkins said, how do you do research? So he said, well, you fund me. See, give me the money and I'll do the research. And that was the beginning of it. And then he worked with Jeff Ehrlich and Effini uh, initially. And then he went his way and Ehrlich Fo- started the, his research unit at Ohio State University. And they do just magnificent research. So I'd have to include those, those three. And I'm glad to say they're all personal friends now. I could go on. I think J- Gary Taub's reading his book was very important. And then finally, Nina Teichelt, who, who wrote The Big Fat Surprise and who was one of my expert witnesses. That book, you won't believe, her book came out one week after I'd been charged. One week wow. after I'd been charged. And I read this book and I said, here's my savior. <laughs> you know, yeah. here was all the evidence I needed to prove that the, the low-carbohydrate diet was more beneficial than the low-fat diet and that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. So so I think those five, there are many, many more, but, but those are the five I think I'd put, put right at the top. Yeah, I've had both Nina and uh, Gary Taubes on the show. And Gary Taubes was one of my first, uh, he was on the, the first five episodes that I did. Mm-hmm. And I... I I can get locked into talking to people like him, like you, who are these engineer mindset. You know, Gary Taub was trained as a physicist before he became a reporter. And Nina Teichels, her dad was an engineer. So she thinks like an engineer. And she looks at, at the thing. One of the things that engineers are great at is not just looking at whole systems. But as Nina said, they will see a problem and they don't have a problem breaking things all the way down to see where that problem was. And then fixing yeah. things back up, rebuilding it from yeah. the ground up. Whereas medical profession, maybe because there's so much money invested into it, they don't want to do that. They'll, they'll build things up and then they'll have a problem that started here that creates a problem. They don't see it here, but it created a problem up at the top. And they don't want to break everything down to find that problem. They instead want to cover the problem from the top. You know, That's and a it's, analogy. Very interesting analogy. Yeah. You know, and so that's it's a different way of thinking that I think leads us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, that I think if we thought more like an engineer, if we thought more like a researcher, that we changed our mindset, uh, mindsets and our perceptions, that we can make a lot more beneficial changes to our society, to nutrition, to uh, everything that we want to do and make a more equitable society for everyone as well. Because when you look at whole systems, you'll look at whole societies and realize that when you allow pop, large parts of your populations to become unhealthy, uneducated, uh, to not have potential to 
to where that they may be reliant on governmental services and things like that because they they don't have the the potent, the same uh, opportunities that other people have that you're creating a large part of the population that cannot contribute to the betterment of society the betterment of creation of more wealth of more funding of everybody building up if you have a population that is very ill and let's say something like i don't know something crazy like a pandemic hits <laughs> and these people don't have health care, then that pandemic might spread a bit faster, right? Just a thought. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to, like, I don't know why I might have thought of that, but, you know. No. But uh, And I could just add one last point that the engineers actually are accountable for what they do. If a yes. bridge doesn't work, the engineers are accountable. Yes. If your treatment doesn't work for a patient with diabetes, no one's accountable. Yeah, dies. Yeah, that's it is so true. And uh, I mean, if if you drive, if your building collapses because you you didn't put the right structure in, there's a lawsuit. Whereas you know, it seems like a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are protected if their drug doesn't work very well. They're protected yeah. from from prosecution in many ways, or even civil suits. So I am going to tell everybody, look below in the show notes, because I am putting all the links to the Noakes Foundation, to the Nutritional Network. Mm -hmm. I'm putting all of the Professor Noakes' books in, in, the, uh, in the show notes down there, so you can get links to all these resources. So everything's going to be there easy for you to find. I also want to encourage people to support the research. Again, I've said it like probably three times, support these independent research programs like what Professor Noakes is doing, get involved. We, we make changes when we get involved as people and force the changes in a positive way. This is how we do it. This is how we create a revolution. Please get involved. And then the final thing I want to say is if you want to support the podcast, if you want to help us get out there more, if you want to help improve the sound quality, the ability to produce more episodes, get more great people on, you can become a rock star supporter and go to patreon.com slash the fatty Joe show or patreon.com slash Carrie Brown. And you can become a supporter of everything that Carrie and I are doing. I want to give a shout out to a couple of our rock stars. Deborah Glasner and Miriam Bear. These folks have supported us since before there was a podcast. And I want to thank them so much because they literally help keep the lights on, the internet flowing so that we can keep doing this. Also, if you want some coaching and some help on making some great keto foods, check out Carrie's master classes. I am telling you, you have never had a better keto ice cream until you've tried Carrie's keto ice cream recipes and you make them for yourself. Um, if you are a fan of Cherry Garcia, she's got a recipe that tastes, it's called double cherry chocolate chunk. And it tastes just like the uh, Cherry Garcia and there's no sugar in it. So it's pretty awesome. And she has a ton of other great ice cream recipes and she has a class to teach you how to make them as well as all the cookbooks there's the crock pot cookbook the ice cream scoop cookbook the holiday masterclass cookbook and more so go to carriebrown.com again links in the show notes and you can check those things out all right everybody i want to encourage you to get involved make things better 
join Professor Nopes on his work, join Nina Teichels, join Gary Taubes, join whatever you can do, join all of them. And let's get a revolution going and make a better diet to create more opportunities for people to become healthier around the world. And also, as always, be kind to one another. Let's New Year. Let's stop this internet bullying stuff and make a positive, healthy, mentally healthy environment out there by being kind and helpful toward one another. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Fatty Joe Show. Be sure to leave a comment and subscribe. It helps the show reach more people. To support the show, as well as Carrie Brown and Yogi's work on the blog, Keto Recipe Development, Masterclasses, and to gain access to private Facebook groups and other awards, go to patreon.com slash the fatty Joe show or patreon.com slash Carrie Brown. Also check out our Carrie Brown and Yogi Parker YouTube channel for video versions of the fatty Joe show recipe videos and more. Join our awesome community on the Facebook group, the keto kitchen with Carrie Brown and Yogi Parker and check out our carriebrown.com website for recipes, blog posts, discounts, cookbooks, masterclasses, and other great stuff. Thank you so much.